The title of this sermon, and actually the Sunday School series that it stems from, is Great Expectations. Expectations have a really, really big role in the way that we interact with each other, in our relationships even. Uh, You have expectations of me, I have expectations of you. And maybe to illustrate this a little bit further, let's just think about our kids for a second there. Think of the expectations you place on your own kids. Go way back even to when your kids were uh, just wee little ones. I've just got a, a kid... Um, Julissa and I were expecting right now. So he's only like what, about 20 weeks old, roughly. And I have high expectations for that child. And the more that you know about the object of your expectations, the more clearly defined they become, the more impacts your relationship with them. And this is especially true for me because the, the more I learn about even this little one in the womb, I have different expectations. Uh, for instance, ever since we found out that it's uh, going to be a boy. <laughs> Thanks. I've got a whole new set of expectations, things that we're going to do together, <laughs> things that I'm going to teach him, ways that he's going to grow up to be like. It has a huge impact of how I'm going to be able to relate to this child. Uh, let's flip this around a little bit, though, because not everybody here has kids. Everybody here has parents, though. Think of the expectations you had as a child on your parents. Yeah. Go way back, maybe even when you uh, were very young and you didn't even know your parents fully, not at all like you know them today. And think about the way that your parents would interact with you, the way they teach you, talk to you. Uh, The more you knew about them, the more your expectations became more clearly defined, the more you got to interact with them in a new way. Uh, For instance, if your parents were the kind that were cold, unfeeling, and your expectations of them became such that you couldn't go to them with problems. You couldn't go to them for counsel. You couldn't go for them for much care or love or anything at all, really. Your relationship is greatly impacted by that expectation. Conversely, if you've got parents, uh, like my in-laws, for instance, who are very loving, supportive, they're willing to guide you, to let you stand in your own two feet, your expectations of them have led you to have a very different relationship with them. So... With this idea, expectations impacting relationships, we're going to explore this a little bit more, uh, specifically how we apply our expectations to Christ himself. Now, in Sunday school, if you were there for the class, we basically started in the book of Numbers and hit major points in Israel's history, leading all the way up to the book of John, where we spent most of our time. And we looked at how were these people in the scripture expecting God to be, or were expecting of Christ when he came. How did those expectations live up to what Christ really was? And more often than not, Christ pretty much destroyed those expectations or exceeded them completely. So let me ask you this. What are your expectations when I mention Christ the King? Jesus Christ the King. That is one of the titles he is given. He is the King of the universe. What are some of the images that your mind conjures up when I apply that title to him? Probably he's omnipotent, he's the God of the universe. Maybe some images from Revelations 21 and 22, literally him just stopping an entire world war against himself by speaking and laying up a new heaven and a new earth. Like Those are huge images, majestic. And that's true, but that side is not what's emphasized in John's gospel. Fact is, in the gospel of John, chapters 1 to 17, Christ is referred to as the king, or his kingdom's referred to about three, maybe four times, depending on what you count. It's not emphasized at all leading up to chapters 18 and 19. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, because when you get to chapters 18 and 19, his trial and crucifixion, 
He's referred to as the king over and over and over. His kingdom is referred to. His uh, majestic divinity is referred to over and over and over. And it's interesting that of all the places in the Gospel of John, his lowest moment is when he's most often referred to or painted as the king by John. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 18, verse 28, down through 19:22. It is a lengthy passage. Bear with me. But as I read through this, follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV, and it's not going to be up on the slides. It's just too big of a passage. But take note, make a tally, or just make a mental note. Every single time you see Jesus Christ referred to as the king, his kingdom's referred to, or somehow Christ is painted as the king in this chapter. Because John is very deliberate the way that he portrays this drama unfolding in his gospel. In fact, most of what's in these chapters is unique just to John's gospel. No details are in here by accident. What John says, he says for a reason. So with that, it's chapter 18, verses 28 to 19.22. And this, uh, oh, by the way, if you're in the Sunday school class, we left off at Jesus being interrogated by the, uh, the high priest, the chief priest, the Jewish conspirators. Uh, this is literally stemming right off from that. This is the high priest handing Christ over to Pilate, hoping to get him executed after his interrogation there. And this is really what all the lessons have been leading up to. I didn't get a chance to kind of give a, a cap or a finishing lesson to the Sunday School series, so this is, this is pretty much it. This is what all the great expectations are leading up to. So verse 28 in chapter 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders then insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, for he claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where did you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you not realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate kept trying to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is an Aramaic gabatha. And it was, about the, it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, and he went to the place of the skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate then had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. A lot of stuff going on there. But do you notice over and over, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, my kingdom, you are a king then. Why is that so strongly emphasized in John's gospel? And there's really two good answers that I came up with. A couple of things that are really interesting about this title, the king of the Jews. The first part is, it is a necessary falsehood. There was a lot of deceit in that title, and it was necessary to the chief priest to get Jesus executed. See, the Jewish people, if you remember, are under the authority of Rome. They are not free. Rome has a tolerance towards them, as they do with all native religions they encounter and conquer. The Jews can carry out justice. They can punish people for breaking the Jewish laws, but they can't execute people for that. If Jewish people could execute people for breaking their laws, they'd be executing Roman sympathizers left and right. Uh, Rome obviously cannot tolerate that. So Jews have to get the permission of a local Roman authority before they can start chopping heads off. However, Rome did not care about messiahs. They didn't care about people claiming to be the son of God. This is Rome. They have an empire to run. They don't care about some Jewish leader leading a small uprising, everyone believing he's some son of God. It is an absurd claim in their eyes, and they've got better things to do. However, they do care about insurrectionists. They are very careful to very quickly, deliberately, brutally squash any military or political uprising. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders are playing off of. They don't sell Jesus to Pilate, for the most part, as the Son of God. They sell him as the King of the Jews. It's a political title in their eyes. It is a means to get him executed. And Pilate, as you can see, wants to set Jesus free for the most part, but his hands are tied. Have you ever wondered about why Pilate simply just didn't let Jesus go? Could have, should have, but... His hands are very much tied. See, Pilate has a reputation at this point in his career. He's really, really bad at dealing with riots. In fact, he's also good at starting riots. He's got a habit of bringing in images of Caesar, right? Graven images in the eyes of the Jews, marching them through the city streets, engraving that image on the soldiers' seals, posting it everywhere. Jews see this as a a violation of their religious holiness, of their religious expression, and they start rioting. How does Pilate react? 
well, by getting Rome to peacefully quell their rebellion? No, he sends soldiers out to massacre them. Men, women, children, innocent bystanders, people just sitting in their houses to see what's going on. People are dying by the droves when riots come up because that's how Pilate deals with things. He's also got a habit of raiding the temple treasury to build aqueducts. Pilate is not a popular guy with the Jews. and The Jews are twisting his arm. They're saying, if you let this man go, this king of the Jews, we're telling Caesar you're allowing a political uprising to take root. Furthermore, if Jesus isn't killed, Pilate's also in trouble because Jews are going to revolt either way. Pilate doesn't really have much of a choice here. So the king of the Jews, it's a necessary falsehood. It's a means to an end for the chief priest to get him executed. On the other hand, we know this to be a very true, a very realistic title of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 36 of chapter 18. This is one of the few times in John's gospel where Jesus comes right out and says, I have a kingdom. Very often he shies away from anything that might have a a political meaning to it. Right here, he comes right out and says it. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. He admits to being a king, to having a kingdom, to having royal authority, but he's making it clear it's based in another place. His kingdom, yes, includes the world. He owns and rules over everything, but it's not grounded in this world. It is very much secured in heaven. That's the point he's trying to get across. He's a king, but in a much different, in a much greater sense than what Pilate is expecting. Now, we're going to explore this idea a little bit later on, but this king is doing something very deliberate here. He is very specifically moving towards the cross. He's not going with the flow, so to speak, just because he knows he has to die somehow, some way, in order to carry out the plan of redemption. He is very specifically moving towards a crucifixion. And that's exactly what we're going to go into real quick here. Uh, But first, just to recap, two ideas. King of the Jews, right? Political title, something used by the chief priests as a necessary falsehood to get him crucified. On the other hand, you've got Jesus Christ claiming to be a king, king of the Jews, right? It is a true title, but in a very different sense, in a much greater sense. However, both of these sides of this expectation bound up in that title are very different, but they're leading to the same exact thing. Chief priests want to get Jesus crucified by this title. Jesus Christ wants to get crucified using this title. He is king of the Jews, but he's using his divine authority and influence, and everything in God's plan of redemption is governing him to the cross specifically. Why the cross? That's what we're going to go into right now. First off, the Jewish leaders did not want to risk a martyr by killing him in any other fashion. If you think about it, yes, he could have been stoned. He could have had his head chopped off like the Romans are prone to do. But what happens when you kill a leader of a group, especially a very charismatic one, one that's got a lot of followers, a very influential one that speaks a lot of truth, that has a lot of meaning and depth behind it? People still follow that leader even after he's dead. They follow that cause. This is something the Jewish leaders could not tolerate. Uh, Furthermore... um, You just can't let Jesus live even in name or in memory after he's been killed. You have to make it explicitly clear that everything he said in his life is false. It was contrary to scripture. It was against what God wanted and what God said. This is what they're trying to portray by a crucifixion. See, the cross is necessary. They saw it as the only way they could get rid of Christ. Turn to Deuteronomy 21. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get there. 
Deuteronomy is the farewell speech of Moses to the children of Israel before he dies and just before they enter the promised land. This is kind of Moses' last chance to deliver to Israel. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Here are the blessings if you do right. Here are the curses if you do wrong. And one of the last few things he says in the last chapters in Deuteronomy 21, this is verses 22 and 23, he says something very, very interesting. Moses says, if someone is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave their body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And to the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people in the time of Jesus Christ, to expose somebody on a pole, to impale them, to hang them up, on a tree or a pole, something of that line, was a direct parallel to crucifixion. I'm sure you've heard of crucifixion being referred to as being lifted up on a tree or hung on a tree. That's where this comes from. To be exposed or hung up on a pole or a tree was a curse. It was a direct sign to everyone watching, not just a warning that what this guy did was really, really bad. It was also that this guy is under God's curse. This guy is rejected by God. It was to say that he is suffering the ultimate shame. You could not get any lower than this. Crucifixion, even in purely secular terms, was a severe stern warning, showing the complete humiliation of the victim. To the Jewish, it had that deeper sense of this person was rejected of God. They were under God's curse. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us because Christ was innocent. How could he be under God's curse for being innocent? That's where things get really interesting. But... But first, right next to the ultimate shame of the cross, there's a really interesting flip side that John brings out all throughout his gospel. So flip back to John, and we're going to look at uh, a few different verses, just some little snippets that John kind of alludes to, or he brings up as little teasers leading up to the cross. While you're flipping there, I just want to tell you something that I thought was incredible. John uses this term, uh, lifted up. That's, that's our English translation. But there is a Greek term that that is derived from. Uh, when we talk about Christ being lifted up on the cross, referring to his crucifixion, that Greek term that we translate as lifted up has a dual meaning of exalted. Exalted, lifted up, two dual meanings to the same Greek term. So turn to John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And this is Jesus talking in every single one of these verses about himself and his being lifted up to be crucified. So John three fourteen to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So if you're familiar with the story of Moses in this section, Moses leading the rebellious children of Israel, they sin being stupid again. God sends in poisonous snakes. People get bit. They're getting ready to die because when you get bit by a poisonous snake, you don't live very long. And God instructs Moses, there is a way out of this. Make a bronze snake, lift it up on a pole. People who look on it are going to be healed and live. Jesus Christ takes that story and applies it directly to himself. You see how you get where Jesus Christ is being lifted up on a pole. People who look on him, they're not just healed of a snake bite. They get eternal life. Let's go to the next section. This is chapter 8, verse 28. So John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know 
that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. For Jesus Christ being lifted up, it wasn't what the chief priest had in mind. The chief priest thought that this would be a sign of God's rejection, that everything Jesus Christ had said was false and not worthy to be listened to. Jesus Christ said, when I get lifted up, you all will know that everything I said is vindicated, that I am the Son of God and everything that I say is exactly what the Father has taught me to say. It is incredible to think that Jesus Christ had a totally opposite expectation of the very thing the chief priests were hoping to nail him with. No pun intended. John 12, 32 to 34. Just a few more pages forward. This is the last one. John 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Interesting. Being lifted up, not by coincidence in a spot that was right outside the city gate, in front of all the Jews passing through, will draw all people to myself. See, the crucifixion was not just an end of Christ, like the chief priests were hoping it would be. This was the means to get Jesus Christ, his message, his hope, exposed. I mean, we're still reading about this. Thousands of years later, all around the world, people are still looking up to Jesus Christ, exposed on that pole, and being saved by it. So I hope you get this interesting concept, the cross. It's got this dual purpose. On the one hand, it is a curse, right, from Deuteronomy, and an exaltation of Christ. But these are two very opposite ideas, almost incompatible. It's like water and oil. But they, I, the ideas complete each other so perfectly. They are not just incompatible. They are necessary to each other. Uh, but more importantly, why should you care about this? What is the necessity for you to understand the curse and the exaltation both bound up in the cross. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. This is probably the best passage to explain the idea of the curse and the exaltation, both present in the cross. And this is where we're going to start looking at the crucified king. This is our great expectation. It is not just the king. It is not just the cross. It's these two necessary ideas that have to be present with and in each other if we're going to really get everything going on here. So Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, should be, there we go. I'll go ahead and read that for you. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Here's where it gets really good. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might, be, might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So do you begin to see the curse and the exaltation, the necessity of the cross in particular? See, as, as rebellious people, as sinners, This expectation of Christ, the crucified king, it's absolutely necessary. See, the law was nice. It was an amazing expression of grace and mercy by God given to us so that we could maintain a relationship with him. But it was more or less a band-aid over the wound. Like, the real problem hadn't been dealt with. It was not meant to be a permanent solution. The law ultimately just convicts you. At the end of the day, it really just points out the ways you've messed up. And because of that, because... We aren't perfect. We can't keep the law in every point. We're cursed. 
we have this curse under the law because we can't keep it. The only way to satisfy that law is to remove our sin, to remove that curse by placing it on innocent blood. That's what the curse, that's what the law requires, innocent blood. And that's why animals were identified with the humans. People would sacrifice, place their hand on the animal to be sacrificed, to signify my sin is going on this animal's innocent blood. And it fell under the curse of sin, and it was slaughtered so that you could continue to maintain your relationship with God. That's exactly what happened with Christ. As king, he became the curse so that his people could receive blessings. Notice how he does that, by redeeming. It's a really interesting word, and one that I'm sure you guys are familiar to at least some extent, but the actual definition, it gets even more telling. It literally means to be a payment of a price to recover from the power of another, to ransom or to buy off. Christ literally bought us off the power of the law, of the curse. And to further illustrate this, I found this to be just incredible. Uh, Do you know those last three words Jesus Christ uttered before he gave up the ghost? It is finished, like that triumphal yell just before he gives up the ghost and dies. That phrase, it is finished, came from a single Greek word. And what's really interesting is that business invoices have been unearthed in Egypt with that single word uh, written across them, chiseled or, or even stamped across them, if you will. Uh, what do you generally stamp across a business invoice or a receipt of payment? Paid in full. A lot of scholars are pretty well convinced that that Greek word that we translate as it is finished had a business application meaning paid in full. Jesus Christ literally paid a king's ransom in his own blood to buy us off from the curse and instead give us blessing. That's incredible. I mean, these are not things that that are brand new. I'm not bringing a a new revelation of scripture to you, but to put this in a different perspective is just mind-blowing to me. Now, Martin Luther summed up this passage very well, much more nicely than I could do, and I'm just going to read what he had to say about these four verses in Galatians. He said, because God saw that we could not fulfill the law, he provided a way of salvation long before the law was ever given, a salvation that he promised to Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. The very first thing for us to do is to believe in Christ. First, we must receive the Holy Spirit, who enlightens and sanctifies us, so that we can begin to do the law, which is to love God and our neighbor. Now, the Holy Ghost is not obtained by the law, but by faith in Christ, In the last analysis, to do the law means to believe in Jesus Christ. The tree comes first, and then the fruits. See, that's where it really ends up, isn't it? It's not enough to have this great expectation of the crucified king, the cross, the blessings, the curse. It does no good if it stays there. It leads to fruits. If you hold these truths to be true in our own life, it necessarily leads to to something greater. And I love the, the word play in that lessons. The tree comes first, or the cross, if you will, and then come the fruits. So with that, we're going to get into a little bit of application. With great expectations come great fruits. Um, go back to verse 36, chapter 18. We're hitting on this one once more. Notice that our king's kingdom isn't of this world. And I like how this came up in Sunday school class. Does it make sense for us as subjects of a king whose kingdom is grounded in heaven to be so bound up and focused on the kingdom of this world. I mean, just take a second and kind of evaluate where are your priorities most often set or where is your highest focus most often placed? Is it 
in this world or where your allegiance and your identity and citizenship actually lies. So a huge part of placing this expectation of the crucified king means we live as his subjects. Our allegiance and our focus is on him, not of the kingdom of this world, which is so much inferior. Another thing I want to bring out is how interesting is it that Christ, at his weakest moment, at his most vulnerable, shameful moment in his entire life, is the very moment when John in his gospel applies the title that has with it the greatest sense of power and authority. It's curious, but it makes perfect sense when you realize that the power and the authority that could fulfill the law, that could vanquish the curse, was found on the cross. See, the power that Christ displayed as king in that moment is the most relevant and the most powerful thing in our daily lives. It is vital that we don't let the cross exist in that moment, just isolated, not applicable, not practical. That kind of power is what we need to carry with us. Life gets uncertain, it gets painful, it gets confusing, it gets hard to see Christ at all. But if we hold that expectation that, yes, Christ did his work on the cross, and I'm now receiving the blessings of that, it makes those uncertainties, those problems, those confusions a lot less important. It puts things into perspective. Not to say that we don't go through horrific experiences. We do. It's hard. But try to imagine what Christ did on the cross and the lengths he went to to get you to the place where you have a hope for the future. It really changes things. Now, we have to allow our expectation of who Christ is and what he did to impact us. And not just us and our actions, but the way we view our actions. It's also important. Think about this. Does your life, your actions, the way you live, match the truth that Jesus Christ bought you, redeemed you, gave you the blessings of Abraham, and now made you a son and an heir of God himself? Like we are brought into that adoptive family. Does your life match up with that? And it's hard and something I have to ask myself and challenge myself with over and over again. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but chapter 3 starts out with Paul saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's hung up about something. The Galatians have a problem, and the biggest one, I think, is that the Galatians are depending on the law as opposed to faith in what Christ did on the cross. He's bringing out this idea. He's saying, How stupid is it to be once a slave to sin under the curse of the law to go on living like you are after you've been set free and giving the blessings. It, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine a slave in the master's estate who one day meets the master. The master sets him free and says, this is one day going to all be yours. Enjoy my blessings. You're an adoptive son. And that slave goes back to living like a slave. It denies the truth of who he now is, and that's exactly what we face with on a daily basis. Do our lives match up with the fact that we have been redeemed? We experience these blessings that we now are heirs to God's own kingdom. It's an incredible thought, one that I think doesn't sink in quite as often as it ought to. So if we reduce the cross right there just to a mere ornament and forget the the majesty of the king and the work that was done on that cross, if we reduce it to just that, we run the real risk of preventing that work from infecting every minute of our lives. It does have a real practical application, expression in our lives. See, the great exchange, it's a very popular term. It really is just that. It is literally Christ 
taking our sin, our curse, our death under the law on himself and instead giving us righteousness, giving us blessing, giving us the opportunity to become an adoptive son of God. That's not fair. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And I wonder if we allow the power of that cross to maybe make us a little bit more unfair in our own lives when we've been wronged or when somebody's offended us, if we can say, you know, maybe that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness, but I didn't really deserve what I got from Christ either. It's interesting. Every single move in Christ's life was not just leading to some ambiguous form of death so as to save us. It was leading specifically to the cross. Every single step he took led right to the cross. And it is vital that we understand that that cross is the source of power, the source of our hope, the source of our forgiveness in Christ. It's an incredible thought. Very simple ideas on the surface, but so deep. Finally, I would like to leave you with uh, one last thought, one last application. This is something that uh, I've shared before, but it is well worth repeating. And it's something that I actually heard from a pastor doing uh, premarital counseling with Julissa and I. And he told us that if we were to forget every single thing he said throughout all those lessons, there was one thing that we had to keep in mind, just one thing that we could not let ourselves forget. And I simply have not been able to forget that sense because it is so applicable. He said, no matter what arguments, no matter what changes or challenges or offenses you both go through whenever you go to each other, you must first see yourselves at the foot of the cross. Just imagine how much differently we'd argue with our spouses if first we saw ourselves as sinners saved purely because of Christ's sacrifice for us. I mean, how much... Less offensive does that offense seem to us all of a sudden. It's incredible. And that doesn't just stop there. Think about, I mean, our church family. People hurt each other. People gossip about each other. What if maybe we saw ourselves at the foot of the cross first before we went up to confront that person, before we went up to leave the church in a big show? Think about how practical this can become. Think about your own self when you fail to live up to the expectation that you know you are now a son of God, an heir into the kingdom. What happens when you fail to live out that truth that's now present in your life? If you see yourself at the foot of the cross, it doesn't allow you to beat yourself up over that. It allows you to realize, yes, God saved me, and I have the power and the strength from him to move on, to continue on this path. It makes all the difference in the world. And our great expectation of Jesus Christ, the crucified king, becomes that power, that sorts of strength for us to realize that, yes, Jesus Christ's work on the cross allows us to live like who he made us to be. Let's just go ahead and pray and close. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for showing me these things as I studied your scripture. I thank you for opening up my own eyes to the humbling truth that I am just a sinner saved by your grace and your sacrifice. And I think you went to such great lengths to sacrifice your own majesty and dignity to become a curse for me and for everybody here. And in exchange, gave us blessing, gave us a reason to have hope for the future. Humbly ask that uh, these words don't 
just leave us as we leave the sanctuary. They don't fade so much over time that we don't allow that cross to exist only in memory or in thought, but we make it a real practical way to express who we are. We make it a part of how we make decisions and that we can give you honor and glory by how we live our lives because of the power of the cross. Thank you so much for how faithful you are to us, and I just pray that because of what you've done, we can be more faithful to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.